Good afternoon, everybody. Um, you are here for the Healthy Indoors Show. I'm Bob Krell, host, and uh, we've got a great topic today. I'm really excited about this one. Uh, today's uh, show's topic is uh, sustainability in the post-COVID-19 uh, world. And and our focus is not going to be uh, per se on uh, COVID-19. So I just want to clarify that. We'll be talking more in terms of what we're dealing with uh, from the uh, perspective of where the world was before we jumped into this pandemic and uh, moving forward as a result of it. So with us today, I'm really excited. Um, we've got um, two really uh, competent and knowledgeable individuals with just a ton of experience on the sustainability issues. So uh, in no particular order, I'm gonna introduce them. Uh, Tom Murray is here with us. Hi, Tom. Tom is a pollution uh, prevention and sustainability expert, most recently serving as senior science advisor with the United States Environmental Protection Agency. He has over 44 years in government service. He is the architect of several environmental partnership programs. Um, and uh, he had retired from federal service in January of 2016, is now president of Tom Murray Environmental Consulting, located in rural Maryland. So welcome, Tom. How are you? I'm fine, sir. How are you? Good. Oh, and what I, what I failed to mention, because I just read your bio, Tom is also a uh, regular uh, column, columnist contributor for Healthy Indoors Magazine. So his uh, sustainability snippets uh column uh it comes out every month in uh, our magazine our digital edition so uh definitely you can uh read his musings which are, i find extremely informative and uh fun thank you <laughs> love thank it thank you also with us is john corliss jr uh john is the pr vice president and chief engineer of peer consultants he led the development of post katrina recovery plans for three louisiana parishes the post-flood recovery plan for Nashville, the British Virgin Islands wastewater master plan, and the West Africa water uh, uh, from Purdue University. Uh, he he is active in political campaign or has been active in political campaigns from an early age. Started his career with the Secretary of Policy Office at the U.S. Department of Energy, and between then and now, he's produced folk festivals, led uh, redevelopment of historic uh, mill district, uh, been a college financial aid director managed installation of solar uh, systems on municipal, uh, municipal buildings, set up community foundation and headed wastewater partnering for Massachusetts uh, Water Resources Authority. Um, yeah, the common thread has been the need to apply systems thinking to public sector problems. John is a fellow of the Institute of Industrial and Systems Engineers, founder of IISE Sustainable Development Division, and has a sustainable de development, social, economic, environmental uh, group uh, on LinkedIn with over 4,000 members. Um, wow. So between wow. you two guys, I feel, hi, John. <laughs> hi, how are you doing? John, John, John's coming to us from Massachusetts. Um, and, and of course, in the co-pilot seat, um, the uh, the unflappable Joe Medosh of Hayward Score. He's the healthy building scientist with Hayward Score. Um, so anyway, here we are. So I guess let let's start it out. We've got a bunch of questions we want to get into with uh, you gentlemen today, but to to start the ball rolling, um, how do you? I mean we've had this has been a common theme for us uh you know with the show for the last six weeks on the covid uh topics we've covered how, how is this pandemic uh going to potentially change how we are addressing all the sustainability issues in our world the climate change issues i mean none of that stuff's gone away right because we have a global uh, viral pandemic 
so is is this what's going to happen? How, how do you see this going forward? It just is it just a 10,000 foot view and I'll pose it to whoever wants to grab it first. Is this going to be a positive or a negative? Are, I, I guess, you know, it's like, what's going to happen? I, I, I can do the, the 10,000 foot view because I, I think that's, that's where I spend a lot of time is, is looking at the overall systems types of stuff. Uh, you know, I think I, I, I see what's happening now as sort of a, a, a symptom of what's been happening over the last uh, 50 years. And, and I also think that, uh, a lot of the responses are, are not surprising in parallel. Um, you know, in many respects, um, you know, we, we just, we just uh, celebrated the 50th anniversary of Earth Day. And, and that came out of uh, uh, the Silent Spring uh, published in 1962. But uh, seven, 10 years later in 1972, there was a, a book called Limits to Growth that came out, which came from more my background in, in systems engineering, um, where instead of just looking at the environmental aspect, uh, there was a model developed uh, for a group of industrialists called the, the Club of Rome um, that tried to look at what's the balance between the environmental side, the people side, the, uh, the, the economic side, all of those pieces together. And uh, what their model showed was that um, in 50 to 100 years, uh, we were going to reach the carrying capacity of the planet and that uh, we were going to sort of overshoot that capacity and that there would be an uncontrollable um, sudden dip in population and economic capacity. Um, 50 years later, um, we're entering that period. And, and the thing is, is that at the time, a lot of people said that a lot of the same things we heard about COVID-19. Um, oh, you're, you know, you're over-dramatizing this, you're exaggerating, technology will fix it. Um, the authors of that study said, you know, a small change is going to, small changes now can flatten the curve and lead to a new normal in the future where we don't have to go through all of that and people put it off, put it off. And now you hear people saying, oh, look at all the radical changes we're going to have to make to control climate change in the next 15 years or in the next 10 years. Um, it really reminds me an awful lot about what we've gone through in the last um, six or, you know, six weeks, 10 weeks, 12 weeks with regard to the COVID-19 where some states jumped on it right away and did manage to flatten the curve. Some states waited, got the exponential growth, over, overshot the capacity of their system, uh, lots of deaths. So there's human behavior is very similar, but in a microcosm. But the thing I find encouraging is that between sort of the trade war issues that we've had and the COVID-19, People are changing some of the ways they do supply chains. Um, you're hearing about automobile manufacturers saying, well, maybe instead of having just one plant and moving stuff all over the place, we should have a plant in Europe, we should have a plant in North America, we should have a plant in South America. Um, people are working more from home. Uh, all of those kinds of things actually have the potential to make the changes that are necessary to deal with climate change and sustainability because you're reducing the amount of travel time, you're, you're reducing the amount of fossil fuel consumption. You're moving towards, there's a lot of talk now about local food, especially with the stuff that's been in the news the last week. You know, where do you get your food local as opposed to transporting it all over the, the country, all over the globe? All of those types of things will contribute, I think, to the kinds of changes in behavior that we need to move towards that more sustainable planet and hopefully avoid some of the overshoot and some of the drastic changes that are coming. So 
So I'm actually thinking that, that, you know, yes, this has been a difficult time, but it's forced us to look at things that people didn't want to look at before and decide, you know, wait, some of those behaviors aren't as bad as we thought they were going to be. And look at the impact it's already had on, uh, uh, you know, people saying that the pollution in many of the major cities is much lower than it's ever been over the last quarter. Um, you know, these the good examples for people to actually see, hey, you know, if we make these changes and they weren't that painful all really, um, what a big impact it'll have. So, so I'm, I'm feeling positive. So you're seeing this as an impetus uh, that you're, you're thinking it's going to go in the right direction. I, yeah, good. I do. T- Tom, what are your thoughts? Um, Similar. Uh, In fact, I want to pick up on the point that John just left with. Um, We actually, the pandemic has actually provided for us an unexpected uh, natural experiment, some people are calling it. Um, We did not expect this. I don't think anybody did. But when you look around, read the press globally, you see that carbon emissions are coming down. We, you know, carbon monoxide and nitrous oxide in China is coming down. You can get, you see these before and after uh, photographs of the Los Angeles skyline uh, clarified. People in Venice, Italy are seeing fish in their canals. Um, these are all interesting things that I think are providing for us sort of an image of what the environment can and should be. Um, I know that a lot of these things are ephemeral. When we do get back to some type of normality, they're probably going to start to evaporate before our very eyes. Um, And there's also a lot of negative things that are going on, such as recycling is slowing down and uh, medical waste over in China is building up. uh, And we've got the EPA, a lot of their rules and regulations are being pared back. So these are going to have an impact. But the way that I view what's been going on in that regard with respect to the pandemic is it's an, sort of an, a, a wake-up call in some respects, maybe just illuminating. Uh, it gives us retrospectively, I think, a picture of what the environment was pre-industrial age. But more importantly, it's providing for us sort of a preview of what the industrial age may look like post-pandemic that hopefully will be guided more by sustainability. And I'll just finish on this note. Um, I think the attitude, my, my, my hope, the attitude amongst peoples, not only here in the United States, but the world will be, we don't wanna go through another one of these pandemics. It's been painful, it's been hurtful, it's been horrible. We got climate change now staring us in the face. Let's not make the same mistakes. Let's see if we can band together on this one and solve this issue a little bit more are a little bit better than what we did with the pandemic. And, and my hope is that that will catapult us a little bit more quickly into the future. Can I follow up on what, what Tim just said, maybe a little on the optimistic side is that, you know, they say statistically that it takes 21 days to change people's habits and 60, uh, I think it's 66 days to make it so that that ha- new habit becomes automatic. And I think with the stay at home orders, Maybe I'm one of the few people who thinks the longer this stretches out, the more these changes are going to be permanent. And, and I do think, you know, with the fear of the second wave and things like that, um, as we are enforcing some of these things, the longer this goes on, the more people are going to get used to this new normal. And maybe they won't drift back quite as much as they might have before. 
do you really see people uh, adapting to this as the new normal? I mean, because I, you know, I'm seeing like it seems like there's possibly two factions, you know, in this country, and I don't even want to get into the political ramifications there, but it, it seems like there seems to be, in my opinion, again, and this is you know my my personal opinion, the scope of this right. thing, it's, it seems like there's a, a faction that kind of you know follows science and a faction that you know and science including you know environmental science as well as medical science and uh and then there's a faction that kind of discounts science <laughs> uh well this you know i i think you're right bob i think we're always going to be saddled with that one of the in terms of what we may look like as a new normal coming out of this um there are going to be obviously we're going to have a new normal everybody keeps telling us we're going to have a new normal um it, my my expectation and hope, and it's going to be up to people like uh, like John and myself and others out there, uh, and you you guys to keep pushing this message. Let's just envision for a second that you're um, a factory, a manufacturer, uh, and more than likely, if you have a factory floor, you're going to have to come out of this pandemic with some type of reorientation or reconfiguration of your factory floor for social distancing. All right, mm -hmm. so. Uh, now, a manufacturer can just do that, move things around, or if we could impress upon that manufacturer to take a sustainability look at this, we can suggest to him or her to reach out to, say, the Manufacturing Extension Partnership Program run out of Department of Commerce, where they can come into your factory floor, and while you're looking at it from a social distancing perspective, they can help you look at it from a standpoint of how can you eliminate waste, whether it be wasted time, wasted motion, energy waste, et cetera, et cetera. And you can build that into your, your reconfiguration. You can reach out to your local university, many of which do energy audits, many of them are free. Um, and, and John knows this from his Department of Energy days. Uh, have them come in and do a free energy audit or at least a low cost energy audit so that you can figure out maybe this is a time to do light change outs while you're reconfiguring it mm -hmm. for the social distancing. Um, oil uh, and fossil fuels has been taking a hit during the pandemic, bouncing all over the economic map. Maybe this is an opportunity for that manufacturer to take a closer look at renewable energy and, and other renewable sources and move over to a different energy source. Um, it may be too that a lot of these manufacturers have learned that they are much more nimble than they thought they were. And so they're out there making protective equipment for people from their, their very process. Maybe this is an opportunity for them to sit back and say, you know, maybe there is another product line that we can bring into our, our facility, mm -hmm. or um, maybe we can take a look at our waste and figure out if there's anybody nearby that would, would like to take that waste and create from it a marketable product, sort of a sustainable materials management program and then finally, and John brought this up a little earlier, if you are a manufacturer within an automotive supply chain or any supply chain where there's an OEM that has already built into their programs a sustainability structure with sustainability goals, what can you do while again, you're doing this social distancing for your factory? What could you do to help that OEM meet its goals, which will help you be a competitive participant in its supply chain. So it's trying to take what they're going to do as a result of the pandemic and try to build into that some sustainability considerations and hope and, and work with them and get people to work with them to, to try to make more changes in that regard. 
So based on the things you uh, both said, and the unemployment rate is something that I don't think any of us have ever experienced in our lifetime um, mm-hmm. by looking at you. So, um, but I think that th- this is an opportunity to say that the jobs that are needed right now are in this line. Uh, unfortunately, some administrations have been reluctant to do want to make sustainability measures because they say it's going to hurt industry. Mm-hmm. Right now, mm-hmm. this is the perfect time to yeah. add these jobs um, and, you know, two birds with one stone. Let's put people back to work and let's keep our environment uh, healthier and safer. So do you have any recommendations for that, John? Well, I think, I think again, speaking, you know, you know and I, piling on what, what had just been said before, there, you know, I come from a profession of industrial engineering and, and systems engineering where uh, the kinds of things that were just mentioned, they're the kinds of things that a lot of people in my field do. Now, I happen to have spent my career working in the public sector, but there are a lot of industrial engineers who work in manufacturing, work in all of these settings um, where that's the kinds of things that they do is how do you, how do you reconfigure the floor? How do you, uh, you know, eliminate waste? How do you reduce costs? And, you know, one of the things, again, that I've been finding sort of optimistic is that originally there was a lot of people who were hired as sustainability managers for companies and, and, and where you saw them located was in the uh, public affairs type of departments because it was perceived to be a, an image building practice and a good citizenship practice. And uh, over time, what you're beginning to see is that uh, businesses have found that a lot of those types of activities that they've been doing that were green and good citizenship types of things actually were saving them money. And so those sustainability managers have slowly but surely migrated over to being part of the operations discussions. And when new uh, operations come into floor, they're part of the discussion on what can we do to make them more sustainable? Because oftentimes that also means more cost-effective. And I think it's taken a long time for businesses to realize that sustainability isn't just about doing good for the country. That's a good thing. It's good to do it well for the environment and everything, but that they can actually benefit. And once they see that they can actually benefit from that, I think it, it, it makes a difference in terms of making that uh, the new normal. And, and in terms of you know the, the question just asked, um, you know, People have talked about we're sort of in the you know, fourth industrial revolution and stuff. Well, a lot of stuff is being done through automation now. And so a lot of those jobs that um, were dirty jobs or weren't in sort of sustainable view, those jobs are going away. And it's not because of policy. It's because of the economics. It's because of the technology. Um, you know, despite what any politician says, you're not going to reopen coal mines. You're not going to be doing a lot of these things because it just doesn't make any sense anymore in the new industrial age that we're in. And so where the jobs are, are these other jobs that are in ways to make business more attainable. I mean, the one question that I have had for a long time is that as we get more and more efficient and as we get more and more sustainable, the number of hours of man, person, labor, um, may not be there to employ everybody. And so, I mean, part of the thing is we talk about sustainable development, but if you measure development in terms of GDP growth and you have all sorts of politicians who, who stake their, their campaign on 3% growth, we, can't, we cannot sustain 
exponential growth forever. We only have a certain limited amount of resources in the planet. So we're going to have to redefine what growth is, because if that's what growth is, sustainable development is an oxymoron. What's well, growth um, for growth's sake, isn't it? I mean, that's unfortunately, yeah. it, it seems like that seems to be the mantra of many politicians. Yeah. You know, growth, growth, so we growth. Need it, yeah, we only have we there's a finite amount of resources. Finite amount is we, we we can only go so far. We're on a a sphere out in the universe, and we got we have what we have. We're not going to get any more. Yeah, so we have to redefine what growth and success is around quality of life and and what it what is it that we're doing. And in that case, then how do we employ people to do that? Because right. the old model, we may not have enough hours of work. We may have to redefine what is a work week and, and what is it that success looks like. Yeah, and if I could just add to that, I, I, nobody likes change, um, except for entrepreneurs that are constantly changing. But nobody really likes change. Um, the pandemic is going to require us to change. Um, John was just mentioning moving over to renewables and coal jobs going away. Jobs are, are just flying out. They're just on the, on the whole renewable energy. There are more jobs created now in that particular element uh, of society, and it, it's going to continue to grow. Uh, that's a change that I think people are going to realize down the road, created more jobs and lost jobs. I think the other thing too is that a lot of these companies that do take advantage of these lean manufacturing or green manufacturing, whatever you want to call it, they're going to become much more efficient at what they do. And if you're efficient at what you do, you become much more competitive within supply chains. And as OEMs start looking down their supply chains and say, you know, we're gonna to have to make some decisions and maybe thin that supply chain down and not be able to maintain a lot of the suppliers we've used for years. If you're competitive and if you're efficient and if you're embracing sustainability, which is part of what they want to be, you're going to compete very well. And if you compete very well, that means that over time, you're gonna add more jobs to, to your facility. So the, the, it's, I think John's right. I think the metrics are going to have to be adjusted somewhat moving forward. I think change is going to be uh, an agent that is going to create a lot of jobs where where perhaps we had never envisioned them to be before. So I, I think we'll I think we'll be fine. Well, Joe, you're okay. muted. Try that again. Yeah, sorry. It's a common phrase for younger people to hear when they're in grade school, like the job that you'll have when you're my age hasn't even been invented yet. So um, can you guys put on your imagination cap for just a second? And why don't you describe what, you know, some of these younger people, some of the jobs that back then they were like, they're talking about technology and computers. When I was a kid, I'm like, really, does that, there's going to be enough work for people like that? Um, based upon your experience, what are some examples of like, there will be a whole nother industry that's focused on, and I'll leave it for you. Uh, why don't you go, John? I'll let, I'll let he, he's All right, chopping at the bit. I'll let him okay, go. Yeah, yeah, okay. uh, I'm sorry. Did I, I didn't mean to be chopping at the bit. No, that's yeah. good though. Um, that's good. Yeah. You're excited. I, I think, I think one, and we're starting actually, I think now, Joe, to see this right now. Um, there's a lot of young people out there that are looking at the waste that's coming out of, of different uh, processes. Let's, let's, let's take contaminated plastics. If you're a chicken farmer and you're, you're selling your chickens to the store, some of that's going to come back to you and it's going to have contaminated plastics on it. 
Nobody knows what to do with that contaminated plastic. Okay, so right now it just goes into the landfill. There are people out there that have ideas on how to take that contaminated plastic and make something from it, turn it into a marketable item. And so I think one of the things we're gonna see from our young people is that very thing. Uh, the, old, the old book, Cradle to Cradle, uh, that you guys are familiar with, the same concept there. Uh, you know, you don't have any waste. Basically everything that comes out of a process goes into another process and becomes a marketable item. So I think that's gonna be one area uh, where we're gonna see that. Um, the Pacific Gyre, uh, all that plastic out in the Pacific Ocean, and there's a young gentleman out there trying his damnedest to, to get that wrapped up and, and get it recycled. Uh, he'll probably succeed at that. So um, though that's one area. And I think the other one obviously is going to be on, um, on climate change. Um, I think there's a solution to it that nobody's even thought about yet. And I bet you there's a, a young girl or a young boy in sixth or seventh grade somewhere in the United States that's already thinking about a new concept and we'll hear about her or hear about him within the next 15 years. Um, I think that's going to be sort of an area where we're gonna see a lot of young people really coming forward with some creative ideas that you and I never would have thought about. For that to work, we're gonna to have to get some of the, uh, the old impediments out of the way. Right. I mean, because there still seems to be business as usual on a lot of fronts. You know, the fossil fuel industry is not not going to go into an extinction uh, uh, voluntarily. Yeah, you know, got, they're just have, not. They, well, they own too much of the United States political system and globally. I think it's not it's not just the, the, that they own the political system. And I, I want to address that. But I also want to say, I think, with regard to the to Joe's question, the, the the whole movement towards a circular economy, I think, is is something that's picking up steam. And, and I think that is where the future is gonna go. And I would even go a step further that it's not so much the people who are saying, well, what am I gonna do with that plastic waste? It's the people who are saying, do we need to manufacture that plastic in the first place? And is there an alternative to, I mean, I, I saw some things of people who are trying to come up with uh, ways to, um, you know, the, the little plastic uh, things that hold together six aluminum cans of, of soda, you know, how can you make them out of something that's fish food, you know, mm -hmm. um, so that you're, it's, you're not causing a problem, you're actually causing a benefit. So, so I think there's creativity like that that's going to happen. I think the whole, the, the whole issue with the, uh, and we have to look at this, I mean, what, as you said, I started off at the Department of Energy and, and, and looking at some of these things and, and, uh, you know, I think the big issue with the, the fossil fuel industry and a lot of these others is that um, it's not just the fossil fuel owners. Um, all of our sort of hedge funds and everything that all of our retirement accounts, once we went away from regular retirements to 401k plans, suddenly everybody is interested in the stock market. Even though um, most of us don't benefit when the stock market goes up, we have a tiny piece in there that's our, our retirement plan because it's been tied to that. And a lot of that money is invested in oil companies and energy companies because those were considered safe investments in the past. And the value of those companies is based not on what they're producing right now, but how many reserves they have in the ground. And if you suddenly say to everybody, You've got all this coal in the ground. You've got all this oil in the ground. You've got all this natural gas in the ground. But we've decided we're not going to take that out of the ground because it's good for 
the environment, which is, I think, a good policy, um, suddenly all of our retirement funds dry up a little bit. And that's, that makes it so there's a, a lot of sort of constituents for, well, maybe we need to go slow because, you know, I'm going to be retiring in the next 10 years and, and what's going to happen to my retirement fund. So we have to figure out a way to deal with the economic aspects of that and how we deal with all of the people who have money invested in that. It's not just about the, I mean, the big, the big stockholders and the big executives that are making a killing, you know, I don't have a lot of sympathy for them, but I think we need to address the fact that, that economically, we got to figure out how to decouple these things so that the incentive to keep subsidizing fossil fuels goes away. But right now, that's a hard nut to crack. But well, I, I don't see that changing in the in super near future though, right, John? Because I mean, you know, like unless unless uh, the portfolios start totally divesting from uh, fossil fuels, which there is, there just seem to be a bit of a trend of yeah. that now. I'm seeing, yeah. I am seeing that, yeah. Um, yeah. but that could be a long period. And I guess my question is, we do we have that much time? I'm, I'm all the uh, studies that I've been reading and all the bulletins have been coming out. You know, are indicating that you know we're in like a one decade window here of yeah. making a change. Where there's not a lot of time here. No, I, and I don't think we have that much time. All I'm saying is is that I think that that uh, if we just focus on well, we got to do renewable energy, we got to do all of this stuff. Why are we subsidizing that? We ignore the fact that there's this. You, I mean, there's some people who have said that that. Um, if you totally devalue all the fossil fuels, the, the quote unquote carbon bubble is going to be bigger than the housing bubble. And oh, so, yeah. you know, how do we address that? You know, and I don't think anybody's really focusing on that. They're just trying to push, oh, renewables and this and that, which is all good. But you got to you got to address the 500 pound gorilla in the corner. And I don't see anybody doing that right now. I think that they're they're also subsidizing the political machine that um, you know it, it's a uh, the money goes here and it comes back to say you know what you're okay we're all okay nobody wants to you know say you know what this is the year that we, we make those decisions and uh, I think Tom said it earlier we're waiting for a younger generation to say you know what it's time to change this you know a younger yeah, generation that's all, short, that's all short term maximization and so yes yeah I mean I, I I'm almost afraid I, I I hear some people going sort of look, all right, well, like what Bob said, oh, we'd have to make all these changes in 10 years now. We didn't, we didn't do it in 1972. So we got to make right. all these changes in 10 years. Um, it's too late. So let's get the goods while we can and let, you know, yeah. let it go. And, and I don't, I, that's sort it's, of an irresponsible a, position, mm -hmm. but, you know, I think there's some people who take that. And I think, I think we need to address the, the core issues. Right. It's, it's, it's certainly going to be difficult. Um, I remember when I was at EPA in my first, say, decade at EPA, the relationship that we had with industry was, was as you can imagine, not very good. They didn't want us to talk to them about the, what they were putting into the water, the air, or whatever. Um, around in the 1990s, that all changed. Uh, the industry uh, began to realize that being better environmental stewards, being greener companies was part of the business case, okay? Now, as you can hardly find a corporation in the country that doesn't have a chief sustainability officer that is sitting at the table with all the other C-suite. Um, 
and what's what happened from that point forward is that industry basically started to rule the game in terms of sustainability. And they looked at federal agencies in particular uh, in, in two ways. One, we could really use the data that you've collected over the years to help us meet our sustainability goals. So can we have it please? And second, can you guys go back and look at some of the rules and regulations that you guys put into effect in the 1970s? Because quite frankly, they're standing in the way of us allowing us to come up with new and creative ideas. Uh, recently, the EPA wanted to pull back on some of the mercury uh, regulations that were put out. Immediately, the utility industry came back and said, no, no, do not touch them because we need them. We've already met a lot of these mercury standards. We want that rule there. And so uh, I think bringing it back to what we we're just talking about here, yeah, change takes a lot of time, but hopefully we'll be able to continue to build on that. And as we move forward, not necessarily rely on the politicians and the federal uh, work, you know, the federal infrastructure of the various um, uh, countries dealing with climate change, but instead focus on the corporations and communities and the people within those communities to make those changes. We saw that with this pandemic. People are the ones that are driving what's gonna be happening with this pandemic. If you looked at the news yesterday when Georgia opened up all of their, or a lot of their venues down in Georgia, hardly anybody showed up because people were making the call on that. And so I think that as we move forward, uh, it's going to be the corporations and the people that hopefully will be able to drive us farther uh, into this and, and pull maybe reluctantly the others along with them. First off, I'd like to just I'd like I want to remind the people in the live audience we do have the uh, Q and A section open on if you're watching it on healthyindoors.com, uh, right below the video box is a Q and A and you can log in and actually uh, submit questions that we'll bring up to the uh, panelists here. John, sorry. Yeah, I, I want to throw a third thing in that I think business is looking for, for from uh, government is that, you know, our economic system is not something that was sort of naturally created and discovered. It was something that was created by governments, created by people. And those are the rules of the game. And those rules get changed from time period to time period. Um, and I think one of the issues that some businesses are having is, is that there are a lot of businesses who have realized that for their own long-term sustainability and different people talk about sustainability from different perspectives. And I run into that a lot from in the industrial engineering field. You know, are you talking about being the business being able to sustain itself and to survive over the long term, or are you talking about the sustainability of the planet? And sometimes those things are at conflict and sometimes mm -hmm. they're in agreement. But as companies realize that sustainability may be a benefit to them, there are also some companies that are gonna go for the quick buck and undermine that. And so I think there are more and more businesses who are looking at, you know, if everybody agrees with where we're supposed to be going and we change the rules of the game, so everybody has to play for those by those rules, we're better off. Whereas if it's totally freewheeling, then we may be doing the right thing and then we're going to get hurt because there's somebody else who in the short term is going to benefit by undermining what we're trying to do. So I think some new nor normal 
rules of the game and a minimum platform is also something business is looking for government to provide. But doesn't that beg to uh, strong environmental standards? And, and, you know, strong, you know, and, and that really, I think, has to happen at a federal level. And, you know, I'm going to I'm going to broach that subject and talk about to use the term the 800 uh, pound gorilla in the room. OK, uh, you know, and Tom, I'll put you on the spot. You were in the work for, worked in the EPA a long time and uh, many great things happened through the tenure you know, of, of you know, from the formation of the EPA in the early 70s. And, and you know, when we had rivers on fire and crazy stuff, and you, you'd go to New York City and you couldn't see across Manhattan because it was like a cloud. You know, it, we've, we've improved so much. And are we not regressing right now? Is not the current administration dismantling stuff that took 20, 30, 40 years to put together? And doesn't that, you know, I mean, it alarms the hell out of me. I'm not going to lie. I mean, every day I wake up and read the Wall Street Journal and things that I see this stuff. And I'm like, come on. Why would we do that? Well, well, as somebody who who was at the table and contributed to a lot of those rules and regulations that are now being uh, you know, looked at more closely uh, by this new administration. Yeah, it is rather painful uh, to look at that. Um, and again, I'm, I'm not sure, you know. If we were back in 1980 talking about this, I would be petrified by it, but we're not. As I mentioned before, a lot of industry out there and corporate America, they're gonna move on down the sustainability road with or without us. What they're looking for in terms of what EPA and the rules and regulations, one of the things that's most important to them is leveling the playing field. If I'm a company up on M Street and I'm doing something that's similar to a company down on Fifth Avenue, and they read one book on ecology and they're claiming all of this green stuff in their advertisements, yet I sent my entire staff to learn all everything they could about sustainability. Why are they getting the same recognition I'm getting? So EPA and other federal agencies, we need you to come out with standards. Mm -hmm. So like, like LEED and some of these others that we see in the building industry, Give us some standards that will level that playing field so that we can all measure ourselves against those standards. So I think that's one thing that, that, that we need. Um, and then the other thing I think is that um, there are going to be, and there are and were and will be again, egregious environmental and human health concerns that is best done with a federal standard or regulation. Uh, it's, um, it may be a nationwide or a worldwide, uh, like, um, uh, I'm trying to come up with an example, but it's not coming to me right now. But there's a lot of toxic chemicals out there, for example, that are worldwide that can be best handled at the federal level through some type of a, a regulation. And that, that needs to be done as well. And then, as I mentioned earlier, there has to be some flexibility put into these rules and regulations that allow for scientifically based and creative thinking by those in a position to really make change, which would be a corporate America. If I've got a great idea and I want to move forward on it and my CEO and my CSO are saying it's the greatest idea ever, I don't want my lawyer in the room to say, well, you can't do that because there's an EPA regulation that says if you do that, we're going to get fined or we're going to have this problem or that problem. So we have to deal with that. So it's sort of those, those uh, PFOS and PFOA was what I was trying to think of before. That's an issue that came to us from industry. It's nationally, it's global issue, and needed to be dealt with at the federal level. And right now, PFAS is probably in that category where businesses are upset because 
depending upon the local government or the state government, um, you've got all of these different standards and there isn't a federal standard right now. And so, you know, what is going to be the way we deal with PFAS in the environment? And that's going to be a big issue. I mean, I've seen projections that that could become a billion dollar industry just dealing with PFAS in the not too distant future. Um, but there needs to be some definitive idea of, of what that is. It can't be that this town says this and the town next door says that. Yeah, again, yeah, the standards, you need some standards. Yeah. I was at the we're, Greenville. We're looking at it. Okay, go oh, ahead, John. Yeah, uh, Greenville, and I got to see uh, President Obama uh, mm -hmm. up on stage and uh, a lot of open forums, and he he has no problem with speaking his mind as do many of us, but he said he was um, felt that the things that we were trying to do for sustainability were, were great, except that they were only in California, they were hard to achieve, and they were only affordable for somebody who has more money than, you know, the rest of us. So he felt that it, these were great intentions, but we did not follow through that an average homeowner could, uh, in, you know, put these in case you do you feel that he's on to something or do you feel like, you know, we'll eventually get around to making this into uh, all homes? I think, I think that's changing, Joe. And, and getting back to his comment about only in California and some of these other things, he's right about that. I mean, that's where a lot of the young um, the protesters are and the upstarts and the entrepreneurs come out of California. But again, back to what I was saying before, uh, you could go to any, you go to Toyota and you ask to see their sustainability goals for the next 15 to 20 years, and they'll lay them right out there in front of you. I mean, these corporations are on the sustainability game, and, the, and they will carry a, a lot of us with them. Uh, I think, too, um, you know, we're going to come out of this pandemic with a lot of different, you know, we're going to reboot our thinking, I think, in terms of moving forward now to the next big challenge, which is the climate change issue. And I think we're going to see a, a really a good bump in the whole renewable energy area. Um, we're seeing it already. We're seeing companies out there that are working on, on different uh, materials for wind turbines and how to storage energy, uh, store energy and more efficiently uh, associated with wind turbines. Comp cottage companies are starting up to do those things. And so it's happening now. Uh, and, and hopefully as we come out of this pandemic with a little bit of uh, fresh thinking on the issues, uh, maybe we'll be able to kick it a bit. I'm a little jaded, though. I, I, have, to, I have to say, because, again, I look at the our COVID response, uh, you know, as kind of a uh, like an example of how failure to have good leadership at the top. And, and this is not 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 talking the White House necessarily, but just in general that, you know, having federal regulatory uh, control of things. Guidance. You know, and, good guidance. And, and, yeah. And we don't ha and we don't ha we're not having that. So you've got you've got this hodgepodge of responses on the pandemic state to state. And, you know, like to John's point, you know, having the locales and, you know, at the at the at the local level and at the state level uh, on big issues. I don't think that works because you got you're going to have some yeehaws that are going to like, let's open everything back up. Nobody needs masks, you know, and we're going to have a second wave of this pandemic that's going to be, in my opinion, horrific and it's avoidable. And it really bothers me because it's like it's again, it's a lack of control, for, you know, to make a reasonable policy. Right. And that's that's sort of part and parcel of the form of government that we have. And and you know one of the people one one article I was reading not too long ago, you know, said that to a certain degree federalism is what's saving us right now. Um, because even when we have you know the United States over its you know almost 250 years uh, um, 
history now has has been blessed with some good leaders at the right time. But every once in a while, you get a clunker. And, you know, the, the, the good thing about the federal system is that you do have right now 50 states with 50 governors. And, you know, when there's a clunker at the top, then, then you know, the, the states can step in. And, you know, some of the states, it, it's like a natural experiment, as Tom said before. You know, some states have done a good job and some states have done a bad job. And so we've got a real learning experience here. And the question is, is it, you know, two steps forward, one step back, and this is our one step back. And so now, you know, there'll be a backlash from that, hopefully. And, and you know, you mentioned earlier that, you know, do we have two groups? I've actually found it interesting because I've got, uh, you know, I, I, uh, I have a lot of friends. I went to high school in New Hampshire. New Hampshire is much more, um, you know, live free or die than Massachusetts. And, and so I, I spent my, my youth growing up in Massachusetts and being involved here. And then my high school years, and I said, I, said I, I went from uh, being a, a moderate in Massachusetts to a liberal in, in New Hampshire to being a radical in Georgia. And all I did was change locations. Um, I didn't change my politics at all. Um, but the, the um, you know, those friends of mine who I went to high school with, even some of those who are really conservative, they're ones putting on Facebook, you know, don't be a dip and, you know, stay home, you know. And so, you know, it's not all of the people who are conservative or who are who are supporting uh, other candidates who are out there doing the rallies at the state house in Michigan or, or elsewhere, there I think are increasing numbers of people across the spectrum who are saying, look, you know, this just makes sense. You know, let's not make it so you're you're putting your grandparents at risk or or whatever. And and let's be practical about it. And so hopefully you know, that'll be reflected in the next round of elections and, and, and moving forward. But, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm with you, Bob, um, I'm with your frustration on this. I, I really am. Um, I heard something the other, the other day I was watching the news that struck me, and that was that under, again, this new normal that we keep talking about, um, it may be a new normal where people finally, finally are listening to the scientists because of what we just went through with this, this epidemic. You're uh, optimistic. Pandemic. Yeah, you're yeah. optimistic. Because there's all not. Uh, I, I want to give you one last question before we do a wrap up. And many things you guys talked about are logical, uh, you know, straightforward, uh, seem to make sense. But the things that's happening, especially I think now, because we've been you know, in homes for our homes for a while, there's an emotional side that's now, getting vetted. Right. And mm -hmm. um, that's why I think some of these people are, they're, they're freaking out and they're showing their emotions, not their logic as to why they want to open the country up. Uh, can either one of you describe some of the uh, emotions that could be, that we should be uh, taking advantage of about climate change. That, that's an emotional condition that is, it's, it's logical. Yes. But if we can, uh, you know, get to their emotional side and get the 60 to 66 days of behavior change for an emotional commitment, those are the things that could last a long time. Yeah. Jen, if I could just jump on that, Joe, one of the things I wrote this up in one of the articles I did for the magazine, one of the things that I read recently that troubled me considerably was an article written about uh, Generation Z, the young kids that are, that at least in their minds, 
feel that they're going to have to bear the brunt of dealing with the, the whole issue of climate change. And what really got me was that they now have psychological terms out there like eco-anxiety, climate depression, climate change delusion. These are all psychological terms now that have crept into the lexicon with respect to childhood development. And we're going to see more terms, I think, coming out of the pandemic that are going to be of a similar nature. Okay, um, That troubles me. And, and I think that uh, one of the emotions, if we could turn that emotion that we're seeing at that level into something that's more positive, something I've been pushing for a long time, is that we need to ensure that all of the generations that are still walking on this planet, including those like myself and the baby boomer uh, area, mm -hmm. um, we need to work together across all of those generations to solve the problems that we have to face. And the other thing is, is that we need to walk across disciplines and do the same thing. We tend to come together as economists or environmental professionals or lawyers or engineers. We never bring all of them together to talk about the issue and how we can bring together all of our strengths and work on all of our weaknesses together and then work with across generations to help these young people with this issue. So um, if that emotion is something that we work down through the school system, if we work it down through moms and dads or whatever it might be, I think that's an emotion right now that we can sort of ride after this pandemic is over and see if that might help us in the climate change discussion. You know, after I, I agree with, yeah. with what Tom said, and, and I actually, I mean, again, you know, I'm, I'm an industrial engineer by training. Our, our whole profession is, is based on sort of being at that nexus of the technical sciences, the environmental sciences, and the social sciences. And how do you create systems? How do you create organizations out of that? And, and quite frankly, I have a hard time sometimes even dealing with some of the people in my own profession where they're like, you know, well, it's a whole lot easier to deal with a physical system with, with how you lay out that factory floor than dealing with the people systems. And I like mm -hmm. the people systems, but the people systems require that kind of multidisciplinary approach. And, uh, you know, I think having people who understand all three aspects convene that is important. And I, I hope more uh, industrial and systems engineers and other people who are more multidisciplinary step to the fore and, and try and act as conveners and bring together that kind of change. Uh, after Osama bin Laden was assassinated, I don't know if you guys remember this, but there yeah. was a, an outpouring of college students. And, and it wasn't that they were like, go America. There was a underlying condition that they didn't understand until they stopped and asked what, what happened. And many of those were little kids who were able to watch TV as things crumbled and all these things happened. And they had this emotional challenge. They were having nightmares about Osama bin Laden and all these things that weren't really mentioned in society. We weren't like talking about issues that younger people had until this day happened and they, they just poured out, but all, like they were relieved that this was no longer in their lives. And I, I think forward as to, there's a lot of younger people who are uh, could be traumatized by the issues that we had with sheltering in place and all the death tolls that were that, that you have to hear about, but they could also be motivated by what could actually happen in terms of what they're seeing in clean skies and 
other things. So let's hope that they end up with a positive emotional scar that yeah. will last uh, for the next right. 10 years. Yeah. And, and, and Joe, I think that's another reason for the generations to talk to each other. I mean, uh, I was around in 1962 with the Cuban Missile Crisis and the threat of thermonuclear war. I was scared at that point because I was like 13 years old and I had to take, you know, canned goods to school and jump under my desk when the nuns told me to jump under my desk. We were frightened and our mm -hmm. parents were frightened because of World War II and some of the things they experienced. Right. And so you do, we do need to talk to the young people about what we went through and how we got over it and how we learned from it and how, like you said, turn that fearful emotion into a determination emotion. And that maybe this pandemic will do the same thing. When people see that they've lost relatives or whatever uh, to the pandemic, they're going to come on the other side of this and say, enough, enough of this. Let's get together and make sure, A, that this type of thing never happens again. And number two, we've got this other issue of climate change. We've got to figure out a way to work better so that we don't go through this poor, bad emotion again. Just, I mean, just how, a very how, small little anecdote on, on that is that I have a friend of mine who uh, he just posted on Facebook uh, on the anniversary of Kent State. And what he and, and I've always known him as he's a street performer and political activist. He, he's the head of the Street Performers Guild of America type of thing and, and advocating for lots of social change. And on Facebook, he said that was the day it changed was the day of the Kent State shooting, he was a chemical engineering major. And he changed to become a performer and a political activist because of that one event. And so hopefully if we get people coming out of this event that are motivated to take on that kind of change and take on those kinds of issues the same way he was, um, you know, we'll be better off out of this. Hopefully we'll find more people like that coming out of this. So, so how, can we, how can we move these issues uh, surrounding indoor health forward as we're reopening our businesses? And, you know, and how does that all play into the bigger picture of uh, sustainability and, you know, in light of the climate change issue? And, and I know that's a really big, you know, thing to throw out at the end, but that's what I do, right, Joe? I always have. Yeah, well, yeah I, right. Yeah. It's, I, it's I, part I, of my nature. I think, I think, one major message, Bob, back to people is don't be too hasty to get back to what you consider to be normal. Yeah, what's normal? What's normal anymore. <laughs> but getting back to what I was saying and John was saying earlier in, in the show here is that this is a perfect opportunity to take a look at what you have done, what you do as a business or whatever you do, and to yeah. reboot your thinking a little bit and to reach out to sustainability experts and say, I want to do it differently and I want to do it right and I don't know how to in, in, in involve sustainability and how I re, re, you know figure my reconfigure my business can you help out and get those people to come in and really affect change that that at the most basic level I think is something that we can do uh, and then just keep talking again I, I am a firm believer that we need to find a way to get to the younger generations uh, and not only help them through this but also learn from them they're going to have a lot of cool ideas that we never thought about. We do have a question that we had a listener. Uh, I, I know the answer, but I thought we should address the, the thing. This is the elephant in the room is that people want to recycle. Um, it's a challenge to do that, but there's stats out that 93% of plastic is not even recycled 
and yeah. if it is, it's where does it go? Right. Does it, if it goes anywhere, right. well, single stream yeah. recycling is pretty much a failure, but that's another that's topic for another uh, yeah. issue. Well, <laughs> well, it is. It's an economic failure too, because I think yeah. a lot of uh, I know down where I am, for example, we don't recycle anymore. It all goes to uh, waste energy. Um, but that's what I was talking about earlier. There's a lot of entrepreneurs out there that are looking at that that you know particular waste stream and trying to figure out what could we make from that. Can we have is there a sustainable materials management approach that we could use there? And so I think that's where we're going to see a lot of recycling slowly moving into that particular arena. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I like I said, it's going to be a change. I mean, it's. I, going back to the milkman and I mean, we owned a corner store when I was a kid and it was all glass bottles that all got sent back and refilled. Um, you know, plastic was great. It was, you know, convenient. It doesn't break all of that kind of stuff, but we never, there were a lot of unintended consequences. And, and I think that's, that's the thing now, now we know what those consequences are and people are going to come up with new materials to, uh, to be used in place of plastic plastic that cannot be recycled well think about it in our lifetimes right and joe's the youngest one here on the panel but i mean in our our lifetimes when i was a kid you know i'm 61 now um everything was in glass right the, the yeah, milkman yeah. used to deliver milk to my house there was a milkman yeah. in a truck with glass bottles the metal rack yeah. and the cardboard caps over it. i actually lived through the yeah. end of that too yeah. and you know what it tasted better too that's another that's yeah. another aside you know and that was normal right we didn't have all this disposable stuff and all this uh manufactured nonsense so you know hopefully yeah. we maybe go back to where we should be well you know, the industry is hoping that you know uh, coke and similar corporations well, just even if they just went to aluminum, I mean, that, that is a much easier uh, able to recycle. Uh, your glass has its challenges, but you just get rid of the plastic and let, let's all figure out a way to reuse the aluminum. So there are things that can happen. And it's yeah, people at the top that can make that decisions. That, that yeah. some young person is going to invent that uh, yeah. we don't even know about. Yeah. yeah, I mean, we definitely, I mean, there's so, we could go on for hours here too, because really, I mean, these topics, I mean, we, you know, both of you gentlemen are, you know, has such a wealth of experience and knowledge. Um, you know, there's just, you know, build, building materials. Why, why are we not, you know, incorporating hemp? You know, hemp, hemp seems like to be a really quick renewable resource that could be used in a lot of aspects of, you know, some of the construction materials we're using, you know, and, and I, I, I see us going there. I, I do think the changes will occur if we uh, allow them to. Um, Joe always will. Now I'm going to jump on top of yours. You always ask for the, the right. wrap up. So I'll let you do it. I just, I just okay, took your profile. Hey, right. This is why I'm here. Yeah, I'm here. So I, I know. I know. I know. You know, it's just been okay. So it's okay. in our defense, so Tom and John, we told them in the pre-show, uh, Joe and I have been streaming the Building Performance Association's uh, National Home Performance Conference, uh, the virtual conference since a week ago, Monday, live. Okay, we're streaming all day long. So this is like we're in our what you and I are in what 70 hours of streaming right now, something like pretty that. Close, pretty close. Right. So, mm, yeah. yeah. Anyway, Joe. So, so, so why don't you give us your, your wrap up as to like give me one or two things that you would hope to see um, in five years that are happening based upon the conditions we're in right now? Like, you know what? If, if I, I, my dream could come true, if these two things actually happen in five years, we talked about that they were completed. Well, I think that, that what I would like to see is us recapturing a lot of the progress that we made pre-pandemic, -pan uh, especially in the sustainability uh, world and especially with renewable energy. I think we had a, a lot going there and hopefully we can recapture that. Uh, and the second thing is I hope we come out of this pandemic um, much better informed in our thinking. 
so that we can incorporate new ideas into old processes. Um, and we have to find a way to keep that communication uh, going to allow us to do that. Um, I, I truly believe we can reach out to the climate change issue uh, much more quickly and, and much better informed if we allow ourselves to do that. Great, let's hope. John? And I, I, I think that, uh, you know, I hope that, that people, begin, uh, somebody the other day said that uh, businesses, instead of focusing on optimization, need to be focusing on optionization because we need to be able to shift quickly. That's one of the things that this has shown people uh, is the pandemic is that we need to be able to shift quickly. Um, and if you have agile companies, agile communities, um, hopefully that's the kind of thing that, that as new ideas come along in the climate change and, and sustainability, we, we are now be more, we will now be more open to, to try to make some of those changes and be willing to try some of those changes and a little less resistant to change. Um, and that, and so that's one thing I'm hoping is, is that, that some of the resistance to change and new ideas and quickly moving, um, has we've learned a lesson from the pandemic. Um, and the second thing is, is that just the overall, that as a society, you know, we've come to realize that, hey, we only have one planet and that we are interconnected and that um, we need to treat it that way. And we need to, um, you know, instead of stepping back and saying, hey, everybody can do whatever they want. Um, we need to start looking at that balance between what society needs and what the environment needs and what the economy needs. And it's not just about the economy. We need a vaccine for the climate. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, my, my fear is that the, that the planet is uh, coming up with its own vaccine for us, yeah. you know, because right. Right. let's face it, you know, these, these uh, viruses jumping from the animal kingdom to the human uh, kingdom, uh, you know, it, they're not happening just oh, we, the, the, these are not isolated incidents right this all goes back no, perhaps to climate change and, and, and we haven't you know? even addressed the fact that they've said that as the ice caps and stuff uh you know uh, in antarctica as they as they um be, and in in siberia and other places as they recede you know they're finding viruses and and various mm -hmm. things that have been frozen there for generations. Yeah, they're entombed for that, tens of thousands of years or more. There's no yeah. immunity for anymore. Maybe there was once upon a time. So, um, you know, we're we're creating our own peril if we don't mm -hmm. uh, deal with these issues. Yeah, the planet will survive. Yeah. The planet will. <laughs> Yeah. That's right. Yeah, it's not right. going anywhere <laughs> in the foreseeable billions of years. Uh, but you know, how how we uh, fare, I guess, is has a lot to do with it. Based on time, I'll give my final. Uh, so I just hope that our emotional attachment to feeling comfortable that also could be the fact that you're driving a lot or just didn't care about the environment, unfortunately, as part of your comfort doesn't come back. I hope that that's the one thing that we're able to separate is that comfort in our old life have to have something that's different. So it's, it's no longer uh, acceptable to be irresponsible the way we were. That's not a comfortable place. I'm hoping that people avoid that to make them feel better. Yeah, I would say from my perspective, you know, from my little closer here, um, I don't want to go back to normal. I, I really don't, because I don't think normal was good. 
I mean, what was normal was, you know, we were basically sending ourselves at a breakneck pace over the end of a cliff. You know, that, that was what that was what our whole economic and, uh, you know, structure, basically how we were doing things here. And uh, I think this is a good opportunity. I agree with the panelists to, to take pause and go, hey, we, you know, business as usual wasn't necessarily good for our long term uh, future. So hopefully we uh can uh, rise to the occasion and learn something. So uh, I guess with that, you know, what's, what's interesting, this panel was great today. Um, boy, we opened up so many topics as we were going around and uh, going through it. I was jotting down notes and there was so much more we could cover. We could do seven or eight more shows easy uh, just with you guys. <laughs> I mean, like just not in a row. And, uh, <laughs> not in a row. No, 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 no. But we, we certainly, you know, certainly uh, want to have you back, you know, and to, to drill down into some of these topics more. So I guess uh, time for the shameless plugs here. First of all, uh, my uh, my co-pilot here, Joe, is the is the healthy building scientist for Hayward Score. Give us a plug on Hayward Score and, and what that's about. Oh, yeah. So uh, it's a free uh, online uh, assessment tool that helps you determine if you're not only is your home is impacting your health, but how to make your home uh, healthier. This is in time now to reevaluate why your home is so important to you and get to know your home. So Hayward Score, it's free. It takes you a few minutes to complete it, and we'll give you lots of individual recommendations that you can do today. And, uh, you know, Tom, Tom has his own consulting business, Tom Murray Consulting. Uh, what, what city are you based in in Maryland? I am on Ocean City. I'm, I'm about, uh, about 200 yards from the Atlantic Ocean. That's nice as long as as long as it stays there. <laughs> keep, keep melting this glacial ice. You, you might be less than 200 yards in the Atlantic Ocean, my friend. Yes, when it starts to lap up against my back door, then you I know. You know. Yeah. And then uh, J John, uh, vice president, uh, in, you're in charge of engineering now, right? For uh, yeah. Peer Consulting. Yeah, and Peer Consultants is a uh, environmental engineering and sciences and sustainability consulting firm. We're a uh, Minority women-owned business based in Washington, D.C., with uh, offices in uh, New England and in Florida and in South Africa. You are global, indeed. I've done, done a lot of sustainability work and uh, uh, award-winning sustainability work in South Africa. We'll have to talk about that. That, that, in includes, future show. that includes indoor air quality types of studies, by the way. Wow. Yeah. So there's there's definitely there's definitely uh, many topics we can we can revisit. Um, and a, a reminder again, Tom is uh, a, a regular uh, featured columnist in Healthy Indoors magazine. You can read his uh, his monthly uh, uh, conscious musings. I, I love him though. It's like they're just he he just really has an interesting perspective. Uh, from all his years uh, with EPA and involved in this industry. And maybe we'll even get John to write us uh, some articles for the magazine. So the shameless plug for Healthy Indoors, um, it, you may may be watching this live or most likely watching a recording of this uh, on healthyindoors.com or through some of our other outlets. We do have a podcast also available at, that gets put up as a recording after the fact on Podbean. So Healthy Indoors, um, if you're looking for us, you can find us on Podbean or on iTunes. And uh, if you go to our, our home uh, page, healthyindoors.com, uh, we have the Healthy Indoors show is there, the podcast is there, and all the back digital issues of the magazine for the past seven plus years are also available there. It's all free. Uh, so we like to consider ourselves a repository of information. Um, so with that, I really want to thank uh, both John and Tom for taking the time out of your day to join us. And Joe, you know, I, I thank you too. 
Yeah, well, I know you're I, busy. And, back at Joe you, and Joe just came off a presentation at that live online event. He literally yeah, popped right. off of that right in here. Yeah. You're you're superhuman or something. <laughs> Come, coming back at you, Bob. Right. Yeah. Okay. On that note. So um, thank you so very much for joining us again. We'll see, Oh, plug for next week, right? We didn't plug yeah. next week. No. We got so we haven't actually, we don't, we, we don't, you don't, we don't know. You were like, okay, what's next week? No, we do have it. Well, I guess I said it because we didn't actually yeah. write the title yet. But what, what we're going to be doing in uh, in the uh, presentation that I did yesterday at the uh, at the event on mold we, uh, for the Building Performance Association, which is predominantly being uh, why are, you know, being attended by people in the weatherization industry, the home performance, building performance industry, a lot of people in, th in those sectors. Uh, I did a 90 minute on uh, mold and dealing with mold in the indoor environments. And it became blatantly apparent that the weatherization agencies and many of the private sector contractors building performance feel like they don't know enough or they don't know how to handle those aspects, right? Dealing with indoor mold issues and moisture issues in the environment. So next week's show, um, the same time next week, uh, Thursday um, at, from 1 to 2 p.m. Eastern on the Healthy Indoor Show, we're going to we're gonna actually delve into that. And we're bringing, uh, we're bringing back some of the uh, presenters from, the, from that conference, from the National Home Performance Online Conference, uh, to talk about moisture and mold. So some people from the weatherization, weatherization sector, as well as uh, people that are contractors in the industry. So that, that should be fun. Uh, not a COVID topic. We're actually going to talk about moisture and mold and building dynamics. We'll see there, if there's we other topics, even yeah, during a pandemic, there are other topics. I bet it, I bet it shows up. It's everywhere. Yeah. yeah. So anyway, uh, with that, thank you very much, gentlemen. Um, to everyone out there, uh, please stay safe and we'll see you next week on the healthy indoor show. I'm Bob Krell. Have a good week. Thank you.